Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. You had a long meeting today with Cassius Clay. What did you discuss with him? Uh, I would uh, prefer not to mention uh, our discussion. We are brothers, uh, and we have much in common. Uh, if I, I would say this, well, he's never been involved in any trouble. His record is clean. He's actually an all-American boy, or an all-African boy, as you will. And uh, the, an effort on the part of the press to attack him actually hurts America all over the world. I've gotten letters from countries myself, foreign countries, uh, expressing uh, confidence and pride in the clean image that Cassius represents. And I think to attack him, especially on religious grounds, would be most destructive to America's image abroad. Well, will you be helping him try to overcome this WBA speculation? I would not say. I have no comment. My advice always to Brother Cassius is that he never do anything that will in any way tarnish or take away from his image as the heavyweight champion of the world, because I frankly believe that Cassius is in a better position than anyone else to restore the uh, uh, a, a sense of uh, racial pride to not only our people in this country, but all over the world. And uh, he is trying his best to live a clean life and, and uh, project a clean image. But despite this, you find the press is constantly trying to paint him as something other than what he actually is. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. Uh, in fact, if he, had, if he was white, they would be referring to him as the all-American boy, like they used to refer to Jack Armstrong. We intend to make the philosophy of black nationalism a living reality among the so-called Negroes in this country. And in itself, this will give the so-called Negro the incentive to, to try and solve his own problems himself, uh, instead of waiting around for someone else to solve these problems for us. We'll clean up Harlem instead of waiting for the man downtown to clean it up, and we'll straighten it up instead of letting, waiting for the man downtown to straighten it. We'll make the level of the schools come up, to the, come up to par with the level of schools in the suburbs, instead of waiting for someone else to come and bus our children into other communities or bus other children into these communities. We feel that we can do these things ourselves if we don't run into a, a hostile press that will distort our image and our intention to the public. This is the rally you're holding tonight. Are, is your party getting much support now? Yes, uh, I have stacks of mail that has come in uh, from across the country, and surprisingly, mostly at the student, college student level, expressing solid support uh, for a party in this country that will allow the black man, especially the young generation, to give vent to their own political feelings. And uh, they've all expressed support, and they've expressed the desire to become a part of all of our organizational efforts and our action programs. Is the mail coming from both Negro and white? Well, we have gotten mail from both black and white. Uh, the blacks can, uh, the blacks can uh, both uh, help and join, or participate to any, in any way that they want. Uh, we don't let whites join us. Uh, we solicit their sympathy and their support, but they can't join us. Is there any immediate step that you're going to be outlining? Uh, well, it's not our intention to make our plans as such public. One of the things that has uh, 
castrated, if I can use that word. Every move on the part of Negroes in this country is they've let their plans become uh, too much public knowledge. Uh, if, I, if any plan we have, our plan that we will make public is we... Will you be raising the educational level and cleaning up Harlem? Well, the, entire, the only way to solve the problem that the so-called Negroes in this country are confronted by is with a re-education program. Not a re-education program for whites, but a re-education program for black people themselves to uh, eliminate the negative image that, the, that has been, uh, through propaganda, instilled within us of ourselves uh, since we've been in this country. It'll take an, an entirely new approach to restore uh, some kind of racial pride and racial dignity in the minds of the black people. And once we have this pride and this dignity, we can get the cohesiveness and the unity and harmony necessary uh, to solve our own problems here in the black community instead of, instead of waiting for representatives of the white community to come uptown and solve these problems for us. Are you going to be discussing anything else at the rally? We'll discuss many things. <laughs> yes, he definitely will discuss many things, and those are the great words of the one and only Elhan Shabazz, Malcolm X, as he's known, and he's discussing Muhammad Ali, then known as Cassius Clay, talking about their, uh, if they're still uh, together as friends and all, and I played that because, um, first of all, I should say who I am, this is Greg Rashid, if you're new to the program, this is the Root and Root Show, and we're heard Usually once or twice a week, I used to do Fridays and Saturdays, but since I moved, I'm doing various days because a lot of people listen to the show on a delayed basis on iTunes, on blogtalkradio.com. They also listen on uh, a lot of folks in Colorado. My old friends in Colorado listen on KUHS radio on Tuesday, on Wednesdays, I'm sorry. And that was created by the great Henry Archuleta. But wherever you listen to the program and also people listen on YouTube, the fact is we're getting a lot of supporters, a lot of listeners, because they love the subjects that we have on here. And I can't believe I've been on for three years now doing this particular show, but I really wanted to do this one tonight because I got this book early in the year and couldn't get either author at the time to be on the program. And unfortunately, we lost the great Muhammad Ali a couple of weeks ago. And this book is very appropriate for what has gone on since then during the time of Muhammad Ali's funeral and the narrative that's been laid out there about Muhammad Ali. And in many cases, people have not talked about the relationship with Malcolm X and as well as the relationship with Elijah Muhammad. So I'm honored to have on the program the co-author of an excellent book. If you want to know the history, not only about Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, but the history of the black movement as far as alternatives to the civil rights movement in the late 50s through the mid-60s. And I'm honored to have on here today the co-author of the book, Blood Brothers, the fateful friendship, the fatal friendship between Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. And I'm talking about Johnny Smith, and he's the Associate Assistant Professor of American History at Georgia Tech. How you doing there, Johnny? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for writing, for you and the co-author for writing a great book, because on Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and their relationship, because, you know, there's been bits and pieces over the years written about it uh, in two of the movies about Muhammad Ali, The Greatest, and also Ali. There were, you know, actors who were playing Malcolm X in the first movie, The Greatest, uh, James Earl Jones in the last one, uh, Mario Peebles. 
but they don't really get to the essence of the relationship. You know, you get like a five minute clip showing the actors and also reading in various articles, various books about Ali, just a little bit about this, but I'm just so glad that you actually put a book out that extensively talks about that relationship because it was a very powerful, and as you say, that being fatal, a very sad relationship at the end. Yeah, you know, those films are what we would call historical drama, right? And they're based on part fact, part fiction. There's some myth-making. Um, but Randy Roberts, who's a historian at Purdue University, he and I got together, and we had talked for a while about writing a biography of Muhammad Ali, a comprehensive biography. And the more we talked about the project, the more we kept coming back to this crucial period between 1960 and 1965. That is the five-year period that frames the evolution of Cassius Clay into the man that we know as Muhammad Ali. And as we studied that period, we came to realize that to understand how Cassius Clay becomes Muhammad Ali, you have to really keep in mind two key points. Number one is that young Cassius Clay, as he was then known, his experience with racism in America is going to move him toward the nation of Islam, which, of course, under Elijah Muhammad, and in the mosque uh, where Malcolm X preached, they preached black nationalism, racial pride, black independence, and, and Cassius Clay gravitated toward that. The other thing is that in order to understand that, that evolution of how Clay becomes Muhammad Ali, you have to understand how Malcolm X mentored him, how he helped him develop his political consciousness, and that, and that relationship between the two of them emerges the man that we would come to know as Muhammad Ali. And, you know, and you do a great job in the book, both you and the co-author, of describing that. But, you know, the narrative, and by the way, listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315 to join the conversation. But the thing is, you know, it's interesting that, you know, in the whole narrative of Ali's story, a lot of folks make this assumption that Ali didn't know anything about the nation of Islam until he ran into Malcolm X. And that's not true because... You dated back to a gentleman named Ishmael uh, Shabakan back in the right. 1960. And talk a little bit about him, as well as uh, another gentleman that uh, Muhammad Ali and his brother uh, Rahman run into at the time. His name was Rudy, named um, mm -hmm. Sam uh, uh, Saxton, because these are two primary figures before Malcolm X. Yes, actually, you're definitely correct about that. So what happens is this. When Cassius Clay is an amateur boxer in the late 1950s, he's traveling for Golden Gloves tournaments. He's going to Chicago, he's going to Detroit, he's going to some other cities. And when he's not boxing and he's out of the eyes of parental supervision, he gravitates towards some of the black neighborhoods where the nation of Islam had mosques. So he had heard these black nationalists and nation of Islam preachers on you know, uh, soapboxes and ladders preaching about the black man's history and Elijah Muhammad's message. So he was familiar with the Nation of Islam, even as a teenager. So when he turns pro in late 1960, he goes to Miami to train with Angelo Dundee. And when he is training there with Angelo Dundee, he stays in a segregated part of uh, Miami called Overtown. And there he meets a man named Sam Saxon, who is a member of the local mosque, the local Nation of Islam mosque. And Sam Saxon says, uh, you know, we'd like to have you come into the, the mosque and hear our preacher. And, and Cassius Clay made it very clear to Sam Saxon that he had heard Elijah Muhammad preach before on the radio. He had heard 
Louis Farrakhan's record, A Black Man's Heaven is a White Man's Hell. He had played that record before. So he had heard these messages. He was prepared for what he was going to hear inside the mosque in Miami, where he would listen to the minister, Ishmael Sabaton. So what happens is, over the course of 1961 and into 1962, Cassius Clay is going into this mosque. And then in June of 1962, Sam Saxon invites Cassius and his brother Rudy to come to Detroit. And Elijah Muhammad was going to have a big rally in Detroit at Olympia Stadium. And Sam Saxon, before this rally, introduces the Clay brothers to Malcolm X. And that's really when the relationship between uh, Malcolm and Cassius Clay first began. But to be clear, Malcolm didn't know much about Cassius Clay at that moment. You have to remember at that time in June of 62, Cassius Clay was in the top 10, but really the bottom part of the heavyweight division in terms of rankings. He was not yet, you know, competing for the heavyweight championship. So Malcolm didn't really have a reason to pay any attention to him. And the fact is, too, is that uh, the nation of Islam was taught not to pay attention to sports. That was considered the uh, folly of the white devil, as you know they would say. In fact, uh, last night to prepare for the show, after reading your book for the past week, I, I picked up my old copy of The Message to the Black Man by Elijah Muhammad mm-hmm. and turned to the chapter about sports. And the fact is that no one in the nation should be, no black man should be in sports. Because it's a tool for oppression of the of the uh, by the white man, and so it's yes. really funny. It's not surprising at the time, as you say in the book, that Malcolm X would not know who Cassius Clay was at the time. But things changed later on. Yes, I mean that's you bring up a great point, and and in Elijah's book, um, and in his own columns in uh, Muhammad Speaks, he would remind his followers, you know. Sports are a distraction from the real issues that affect poor black people in society. And so he would say, don't waste your time. And he also said, you know, don't go to the movies. Don't go to the white man's theater. Don't go to the white man's shows. Don't spend white money at the white man's stadiums, right? And Malcolm also thought that professional sports, especially boxing, which there were a lot of Jewish uh, boxing promoters at that time, he thought that they exploited the working class, especially black boxers and minority boxers in the other divisions. And so Malcolm really wasn't paying attention to Cassius Clay. However, let's keep this in mind. When Malcolm X was a young man, his hero was Joe Lewis. And he wrote in the autobiography, or at least told Alex Haley when they were working on the autobiography, that every uh, young black man or teenager wanted to be like Joe Lewis. He was the pride of their race. So my point is, is that Malcolm was aware of the cultural power that a heavyweight champion, a black heavyweight champion could possess in society, and that Cassius Clay, if he ever did win the heavyweight title, could become an important voice for black nationalism, the nation of Islam as well. And people have to understand, too, that there was a time when if you were the heavyweight champion of the world, you were the most important figure in the world. It is really something that is forgotten that you were known by everyone. It's not that way now, obviously, but there was a time when, you know, if you had that mantle and you were the heavyweight champion, you were the champion of everyone and that everyone knew who you were. And so, you know, Malcolm, you know, he was aware that, and he saw, and you mentioned in the book, and this is something I didn't know, that Malcolm knew that Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, to become Muhammad Ali, was going to be the heavyweight champion of the world. Talk a little more about that. Well, Malcolm was convinced 
and he convinces Cassius Clay that he was a divine vessel. You know, um, you know, I think one of the things that's important is not only did Malcolm help Cassius Clay develop his political voice, he also helped him think about his own beliefs in Allah. Um, you know, Cassius would eventually tell reporters, look, I'm, I was raised a Baptist, but going into the Muslim mosques, the Nation of Islam's mosques, I've questioned my upbringing. I've questioned Christianity as a religion in the eyes of the nation that uh, taught black people to worship a white god with blonde hair and blue eyes. And so you know, that relationship between Malcolm and young Cassius Clay was important because it led Cassius to question his, his Christian upbringing. And it led him to question integration in society. It led him to question nonviolence. And all of those things in his mind were connected, right? And so I think that that, that relationship, that mentoring he received made him really think deeply about who he wanted to be beyond just being a boxer, beyond just being an entertainer, how he saw himself as a Muslim. And I think that was also critical in the 1960s because he becomes really the first face of Islam. Even though there were many Sunni and uh, traditional Muslims in America who did not consider the nation of Islam as the same religion they practiced. But still, right. the champion in the eyes of many Americans, they thought, oh, this is the representation of Islam in America. So um, that was important as well. And also, we cannot forget, too, because you bring it up at the beginning of the book, Muhammad Ali's father, because in many cases, as I'm reading the book, he is like a, I didn't realize this because I've read many things about Muhammad Ali over the years and about his family and all, but in your book, it hits me that his father in many ways is similar to Elijah Muhammad as far as his beliefs yeah. and all. Talk about his father because it's a whole, because his father went through these streaks where he would become, he was African-American, then he was Arab, then he was Native American. Talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> Cassius Clay Sr. was a frustrated artist. You know, he had aspirations of being a great painter, and he would tell his boys, you know, I, the white man has prevented me from fulfilling my dreams. And so he would tell these stories to his sons about the dangers of being around whites. You know, he'd tell them stories about lynchings and racial violence in the South. And when they all lived in Louisville, Kentucky, he would warn them, don't go into the white man's neighborhoods. You know, don't sass a white police officer. Don't challenge white authority because it will mean trouble. So in some ways, the messages that the Clay brothers were hearing as boys when they were growing up from their father was a message of separation, right? Now, it's not that Cassius Clay Sr. was preaching black nationalism, which is different, but he's basically telling them that they should insulate themselves from the dangers of being around whites. And so in some ways, both young Cassius Clay and Rudy were primed to um, absorb the message from Elijah Muhammad and the ministers in the nation of Islam to see that, yes, this makes sense. It makes sense to insulate ourselves. Um, and so I think that did prepare him for that movement. Now, the irony is, Cassius Clay Sr. detested the nation of Islam. He hated the fact that both of his sons joined the nation of Islam. He hated the fact that they changed their names. Uh, this bothered, bothered him very much because he thought that when they changed their names, they were rejecting their identity, you know, that they were rejecting the family, they were rejecting their Christian upbringing, even though Cassius Clay Sr. was not exactly someone who found himself in church every Sunday. But he oh, didn't like really. that. No. But I think what, 
I, yeah, and I think what bothered him most is that he no longer had control of his sons. And I think that was something that bothered him, especially as Cassius was becoming famous and becoming wealthy. And I agree with that also. I mean, you know, the way you put it in the book, and by the way, listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to Johnny Smith, the author of a great book, Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship of Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Now, you know, talk a little more. You know, there's something about, you know, that you bring out in the book, too, that I had I knew from reading various things about Malcolm X, but a lot of people don't really get into this, is that Malcolm, even though he was in the nation of Islam at the time, he had been to Saudi Arabia. He had been to the the Middle East in the late 50s. And even Mm -hmm. he knew, he didn't go on Hajj, but he knew that the Islam that he saw in the Arab countries versus what Elijah Muhammad was preaching was two different things. And he kind of held his tongue. You know, he just kind of held back as far as what he really was seeing. Yeah, you know, I think that's an important point. Um, You know, Muhammad Ali would later bring that up, too, after Malcolm died. Um, That Malcolm was aware, of course. Malcolm was an intelligent man. He had to have known that it wasn't just black people who were Muslims in the United States and around the world. And so to continue to preach that you know Islam is the black man's religion was never true, and Malcolm knew it wasn't true. But he was speaking for Elijah Muhammad uh, during that period between you know the, the mid fifties until uh, 1964 when he makes uh, his break from the nation of Islam. Um, and I think that part of that must have been self-preservation. You know, we have to think about what Elijah gave Malcolm X. He gives him a life, right? He gives him a faith. He gives him something to believe in when he's in prison, and when he gets out of prison, Elijah gives him a whole world, and he empowers Malcolm. Eventually, he makes him a minister. He makes him basically his top recruiter, his spokesman. He creates this whole world for him, and so it was very difficult for Malcolm to reconcile the fact that Elijah's version of Islam was very different from what was being taught in the Quran, and furthermore, I think Malcolm really struggled with the fact that he learns that Elijah Muhammad is not a real prophet, that Muslims do not believe that uh, – would not have believed that Elijah Muhammad was a prophet. Muhammad was the last prophet. And so he is learning these things. He knows these things, but he's not questioning Elijah Muhammad's divine authority really until 1963, 1964. And he also – you know, as you're saying in the book, and it came out in a lot of other books too, that Malcolm X knew about – Elijah Muhammad's um, relationship with various secretaries. That it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, it, it comes out in around 63 when, when the break happens and on 64, but actually he, you know, he knew that because the folks in the nation of Islam who were in the inner circle, they knew of this. Yes, he, yes, absolutely. And, and Malcolm had his suspicions years earlier, but I don't think he wanted to know. I think he turned a blind eye. Um, because that would have crushed him, and he knew it would have crushed the movement. But it became, in 1963, something he could no longer ignore. And, of course, the FBI was aware of this. They were wiretapping the phones in Chicago at the nation's headquarters. They were following the ministers. They had informants inside the nation. And under J. Edgar Hoover's COINTELPRO program, they were trying to use this to undermine the nation of Islam, and that was – one of Malcolm's great fears, you know, what if the followers 
learn about the fact that Elijah is not the divine moral authority that he claims to be and that he has had these children out of wedlock. And so this created a kind of crisis of faith for him. Um, and I think ultimately what he would tell reporters after the break is that when he learned and he confirmed that these secretaries had children with Elijah Muhammad, he questioned everything Elijah ever told him. It was as if he could no longer believe or convince himself to believe what Elijah had been saying all along. You know, and it's really, you know, and it's really the sad, you know, especially with the relationship of all of, of the three of them, Muhammad Ali, Elijah Muhammad, and Malcolm X, because at the time, and I was, I was a child then, but the nation of Islam, it did a lot, and it still does in many sense, but back then, considering the plight of many folks in the inner city at that time and mm-hmm. also in the deep south, the nation of Islam did a lot to uplift a lot of African Americans. It did a whole lot, and it did more than something, I would say, almost like, you know, if you want to look at something like uh, AA or anything like that, it was a social organization that, to lift people up. And, they, you know, you had some issues, as we you know, have been talking about, and there were some issues of money that you bring up in the, in the book, and a lot of people have talked about that and all of that, but the basic tenets and the basic, as far as helping and changing a viewpoint, of folks who were downtrodden is very important. And I think it's really forgotten in the historical narrative. And I think in your book, you bring, you don't actually say it, but you can see it in there that it's a very important Mm -hmm. part of the whole African-American experience in this country. Absolutely. I, I think when we look at the nation of Islam, we have to look at it holistically. Okay. That there was, as you just said, Many positive aspects of the nation, instilling racial pride. You know, Malcolm would remind the people who came to his mosque that the white man for years has been telling you that you are less than, that you are inferior. You're inferior intellectually. You're inferior physically. Uh, you know, you're just not worthy. You're, you've been treated as a second-class citizen. But he says, you know, look, that's wrong. Right? Black people are strong. We are resilient. We are fighters. And we must unify. And that was important, too. Malcolm was someone who, although for many years in the nation of Islam probably divided black folks because of some of the outrageous and radical things he said, ultimately I think one of the great legacies for Malcolm is that he wanted to unify black folks across a religious spectrum, across political ideologies. That's where he was headed when he formed the OAAU, which was a black nationalist organization. But he wanted to build greater cooperation. But going back to the nation of Islam, the folks who went into those mosques and went to those rallies, they were dressed in their Sunday best. They were proud of their appearance. They wanted to have a, a, a commitment into the community, to be engaged with the community, to have their own businesses, to have their own financial institutions, their own schools, to really uplift the neighborhood, as you said. And I think that was part of the positive impact of the nation of Islam that we do forget I think the the rub, though, the conflict that many people had who entered the nation and left or who refused to join was less had less to do with religion and had more to do with the fact that as the movement progressed, as the civil rights movement progressed, people looked at the nation of Islam and said, you know, they preach about you know self-determination and standing up and fighting back, but they're not on the front lines. And Malcolm heard this more than anyone because he was criticized for not going into the South and not being engaged with the protest movement. And I think that ultimately 
would hurt the nation of Islam. And eventually, you know, after the break, he does go to the South and meets with Coretta King and mm-hmm. Ralph Abernathy, and very briefly, Martin Luther King. And they begin to see a commonality in the struggle, you know, in the struggle together. But it's, you know, it's the near the end of Malcolm's life when all this is going yeah. on. You know, and the thing, you know, it's a funny thing, too, that um, as this is going on at this time, and people have to understand this, as they look at the narrative of what's going on with, you know, as you remember the life of Muhammad Ali now, is that Muhammad Ali, even when he was Cassius Clay, before he actually became Muhammad Ali and he first was Cassius X, he was one of the most hated figures in this country as well as Malcolm X. And to have those yeah. forces together, as I remember, you know, in elementary school, that was like a that was that was dynamite. That was like that's <laughs> too much. Uh, it was. It was almost too much, even for Bill McDonald, who was the promoter in Miami, who was uh, organizing the championship fight between Cassius Clay and Sonny Liston. And on the eve of that fight, by this time, Malcolm had been spending time in. in Clay's camp and the photographers were taking pictures, the reporters were writing about it in the newspapers. It was pretty obvious that he had a relationship with Malcolm X. Well, McDonald blamed Malcolm and, and the Nation of Islam for basically tainting the fight. You know, people weren't buying tickets. Some of them were overpriced. There were other issues, but there were also uh, Jewish folks in Miami who were protesting the fight once they learned of Cassius Clay's relationship with the Nation of Islam. So when we look back on that moment, you know, his association, Muhammad Ali's association with Malcolm X and Islam made him a villain in society. And he wasn't just criticized and condemned by white folks, but black folks who said that, you know, this new heavyweight champion is not the kind of person we want to associate with. He rejects the ideals of integration, which at that moment was still really the, the central goal for many in the civil rights struggle. It wasn't the goal for everyone, but it was certainly very important. It was what Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference were aiming to accomplish. And Cassius Clay represented the antithesis of the integrationist Christian movement. And so we can't separate religion and politics from what Cassius Clay, to become Cassius X, to become Muhammad Ali, embodied in the 1960s. And also the fact, too, from a sporting standpoint, and I remember older males around me who remember who were around Joe Lewis and all, they didn't like Muhammad Ali because they just thought your champion, champion to be then champion, should not talk, mm-hmm. should, should fight, not dance. I mean, it's all of this. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't talk about your looks, you know. Right. You're not supposed to say they're pretty because that makes you seem like you're effeminate. You know, it's all of that's wrapped in there. On top of just the whole civil rights movement ideas and the Christianity ideas, all of that is just wrapped into that. Yeah. I remember those. Yeah, and I think I think you're right. I think you bring up a good point there that some of the old guard, maybe the the folks who are older than you when you were growing up, they remember Joe Lewis. And, you know, if we remember Joe Lewis, he was almost expressionless in the ring. He didn't say hardly a word. He gave monosyllabic answers to reporters. Um, And, of course, Joe Lewis was considered a great patriot because he had defeated Max Schmeling, the Nazi representative, in 1938. He had enlisted in the Army. He raised money for the United States military during World War II. He helped 
uh, desegregate some of the camps in the South, the military camps in the South. And so he was really the first universal black hero in America where white people rooted for a black man in the ring. Well, it was almost impossible for white people to root for Muhammad Ali, right? Then he made him uncomfortable being outspoken and brash. And as you said, he also made people uncomfortable because of the way he talked about himself, right? Redefining the notions of black masculinity, saying, I'm pretty, right? I'm beautiful. He didn't always say, I'm handsome. He said, I'm pretty, I'm beautiful. And so that made some people actually question his sexuality. Uh, but, of course, you know, there was nothing to question there. He was a very active young man. Um, well, very much so. <laughs> you know, yeah, yes. I mean, we know he had many wives, and he got himself into some trouble when he was married. But um, nonetheless, you know, we look back at that moment. You're right. He challenged the notions of what a black athlete was supposed to be. He talked about politics. He challenged the political boundaries of sports in the 1960s when athletes and black athletes especially were expected keep their nose clean, and not heard. And, and the funny thing, too, I was thinking about one of the stories in your book about how, um, you know, he would really, like, throw his own, his little inner circle off sometimes. Um, I'm thinking of the story when he's uh, driving with the two women, I think his brother and some other friends in a car, and he just stops the car and looks at the sky and starts talking about the mothership. <laughs> and he would do that a lot, where he would get into the mothership yeah. thing. And the whole and I we don't have to really get into detail of the mothership, but if you know anything about the nation of Islam, you know what the mothership is about and when it's supposed to come back. It was supposed to come back many years ago. It hasn't come yet. But that's the whole thing. And Muhammad Ali was like big on that. And in fact there's a movie. Was, he loved movies. What was the movie? Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, yeah. That impressed him. That that's amazing. Talk a little more about that. You know, he comes of age when science fiction is really popular. Um, I think also we have to remember that young Cassius Clay was someone who was incredibly um, impressionable. He was a, a visual learner and an auditory learner. What I mean by that is that movies, comic books, pictures, images, that's how he learned, right? He was not really literate. He struggled to read. Um uh, and I think that was something that was really documented and made him feel insecure when he scored poorly on his military test. But what we have to remember, he was a brilliant uh, poet in many ways, right? I mean, he would make up these rhymes and predictions, and no one had ever seen anything like that before. So if you told him something or he heard a story, whether it was a joke or a fable or whatever, or even a sermon, he could hear it, remember it, and repeat it. He was really good at that. And that's a skill. And I think one of the things that made him a... Yes, yes. I mean, I, heavens, I couldn't do anything like that. But and doesn't I think he, what we, if, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't he write a paper when he's 16 years old in high school about the nation? Yes, yes. So the story goes is that he wanted, that he had heard about the nation of Islam or you know came across some members in the nation, and he wanted to write a paper about them. And the story goes that his English teacher refused to let him write this paper because, you know, we have to remember, the Nation of Islam was considered a hate cult, a black supremacist group. And so she was stunned by this and upset, and she was going to fail him. Well, the principal intervened and said, I'm not going to fail this, this young man. He's going to be a famous champion. I'm not going to be the principal who's remembered for failing Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. And so he passes you know, him along through school. 
And I think the larger point is he never really received the formal education that he needed. You have to remember, most boxers come from the working class, right? They come from the margins of society. And he is from that part of the world. Boxing was his opportunity to get out, so to speak, right? And so I think it's important to remember the circumstances he came from. Um, and I think the other thing is going back to his oratory skills, you know, that's I think also what made him attractive to many in the African American community. He could connect with them through oral culture, through folklore. And I think that's also one of the reasons why he was attracted to the Nation of Islam because the stories they told, the sermons they gave about history, they fascinated him. As it did Malcolm X when he originally joined the Nation of Islam, because it's the same thing, yeah. the stories. All of that was fascination, and it turns right back around. Even though he wasn't the most articulate person, the stories that Elijah Muhammad was saying, interweaving in, the, in his newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, and also in the, mm-hmm. his books such as The Message to the Black Man, they were very key to both Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. And they, if you read some of the materials that were produced by Elijah Muhammad and then listen to Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, they are regurgitating what Elijah Muhammad is writing. Yes. You know, you're absolutely right. They echoed the words of Elijah Muhammad. And I think what registered for Elijah's followers and for Malcolm and, and young Cassius Clay is a brutal honesty, right? Elijah Muhammad is talking about the horrific violence that whites have committed against black folks. He tells stories about his own experiences growing up in the Jim Crow South, the horrors that he has seen, uh, the, the, the racism he experienced in Detroit. And so, you know, when he would say, don't trust the white man, black folks would nod their head and understand, yeah, we know why you're saying don't trust them. Because at some point in our lives, or our family's lives, they've crossed us, they've hurt us, or maybe done worse to us. And so I think that that honesty made Elijah's message and Malcolm's message seem authentic, right? And I think that's one of the things that Muhammad Ali would say later in his life, that when he heard Malcolm and Elijah preach, it made sense to him. They t- spoke in concrete terms about you know, the dangers of integration, um, about the way black people were treated in American society, about slavery. It all made sense. It wasn't in the abstract. You know, it, it really, you know, if you haven't read the words of Elijah Muhammad, and also, you know, you haven't read, you know, you got to read this book, first of all, well, Blood Brothers, but also just read some of the other stuff that's out there, the, the primary sources, the all, you know, the old newspapers and all that, and you'll, you'll see, you'll see a lot of that. But there, there is so much we can get into in this book, because we, we're just covering this, just a portion, because I want folks out there to get the book and read it for themselves. And I want to ask you, Johnny, with the you know with the passing of Muhammad Ali, what do you know? Writing this book, you know, co-authoring this book, and you see what people are saying about Ali now, as well as what's been said about Malcolm X in the past. Do you sit sometimes and say, "I wish people would say this blank"? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. You know, after Muhammad Ali died. If you listen to the eulogies that day, with the exception of Malcolm's daughter, Atala Shabazz, there's no discussion about how Muhammad Ali became Muhammad Ali. Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, Nation of Islam, they are not mentioned. And I think that's, that omission speaks volumes. 
And that omission has been going on for decades, really. You know, one of the things that happened is that in the 1990s, Muhammad Ali's image is really rehabilitated. And I think the key moment, of course, is the 1996 Olympic Games when he lights the torch. And that's when political figures, uh, presidents, corporations, the media, they kind of rediscovered Muhammad Ali. He now became a symbol for a universal America, right? And, of course, Ali could not speak for himself. You know, Parkinson's disease had robbed him of his verbal gifts. And so in that silence, you have others speaking for him, and they were not speaking about his relationship with the nation of Islam. They were not bringing up that history. But that history is crucial in understanding the meaning of Muhammad Ali in America. If we don't understand his relationship with the nation of Islam and Malcolm X, then we are ignoring his humanity as a black man, his experiences with racism in America. You hear a lot of dialogue right now about how Muhammad Ali transcended race. No, he didn't. That's ridiculous. To suggest that Muhammad Ali transcended race is to not understand what he stood for, that he That's spoke right. out against injustice against black people, police harassment, lynching in America. You know, the whole idea that he said, I'm not going to Vietnam, was because he said, you know, black people here, here you know, are getting abused and their churches are being bombed. You want me to go to Vietnam and drop bombs and bullets on brown people? That's a a racial argument to position by his experience as a black man. So for some of these conversations, people say, oh, we transcended you know, race. It's an absolute myth. It's nonsense. And I think we do a disservice to his legacy when we ignore what he stood for. Well, I want to say he would be proud. I know that he would be proud and Malcolm X would be proud to read your book, Blood Brothers, the fatal, <clears throat> excuse me, the fatal friendship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and so on basic books and if anyone wants to reach you i know you have a uh, give them your twitter account because i know you have that yeah uh my twitter handle is at sports hist h-i-s-t prof so it stands for at sports history professor so at sports hist prof uh they can reach out to me i'm also you know you can find me if you just google johnny smith george tech and uh, always like to hear from from readers well johnny i just want to thank you for being on that you have co-authored a great book on Martin, uh, don't say Martin Luther King, but Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, and I, I was about to say Martin Luther King because you do get into that in the book, and I, we're not going to talk about that now, but I want folks to get out there and get this book and read about it because I say, besides being a history lesson on the civil rights movement, the Black Power movement, Black struggle movement of the '60s, it's also a sports book because you get into a lot of Muhammad Ali's fights in detail. I mean, you yeah, get into some of the your early fights, you know, the Sonny Banks fight and Archie yeah. Moore, the Logan fight, and I, I was and being a boxing aficionado, I was I was loving that too. Oh, good. Well, I appreciate you know your kind words about the book. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and yeah, of course, you know, and I think you know, um, I spoke to Roland Martin, and one of the questions he asked me was, you know, why would two white historians write a book about two black icons? And I thought it was a good question. And what I said to him essentially is this. As historians, we recognize that you cannot separate sports from race, sports from politics in America. And although Randy and I are both white, we recognize the importance of black men to the world of boxing. If you think about the 20th century, if you think about the long black freedom struggle, you cannot understand that history without looking at the experiences and the politics around Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, and Muhammad Ali. Those three men 
you could teach a course around their lives and how they studying their lives helps us understand how the color line was shaped and challenged in American society in the 20th century. It's really amazing. Three boxers, you know, who's translated yeah. this sport. It's just really amazing. And I'm just glad that you wrote this, you co-wrote this book. It's really a great book and hope to meet you sometime. And you did a great job. And, you know, I just was just thankful for having you on here. Just thanks so much again, Johnny. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate the invitation. All right. You take care, Johnny. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. And again, that was uh, Johnny Smith, the co-author of the book, along with Randy Roberts of Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. And like you said, it's on basic books, and it's a different narrative than what you're currently hearing about Muhammad Ali I mean, it's the same thing that they, they have been doing over the years of Martin Luther King Jr., you know, and also Malcolm X. It's a whole, these creative narratives that aren't there. Check the history out. Check a book out like this. And just the history, or go, you know, you have the advantage now to go to YouTube and look at, look at some of Muhammad Ali's speeches on television, in front of campuses, on university campuses. You know, during interviews with reporters, you can look at Malcolm X. You can look and really hear their words and judge for yourself, and you'll see a different narrative than what is being produced right now. But that's, uh, you know, I'm just, you know, just, glad, you know, as you can see, I get worked up on that because I love both those figures. And I grew up during that era, and I really was happy. And I have to say, first, I was, you know, when I got the book, I said, ah, two white guys writing this. I don't know what they're going to do if they're going to do it right, but they did it better than right. I mean, it's a great book, Blood Brothers, so check it out. And I'm going to play right now because Johnny did mention this this uh, song that Muhammad Ali would play constantly when he was, you know, when he was younger, when he was Cassius Clay, and it influenced him greatly. And this is Louis X, Louis Walcott, known today as Louis Farrakhan, and he was a, what they call Calypso music back then. He was trying to pattern himself in the late 50s and early 60s as the new Harry Belafonte, but he joined the Nation of Islam. And so he put out a number of 45s. And this is the one, this is the most famous one. A white man's heaven is a black man's hell. So I'm going to play this. This is from 1960. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Why are we called Negroes? Why are we deaf, dumb, and blind? Why is everybody making progress, yet we seem to be lagging so far behind? Why are we mistreated? Why are we in this condition, stripped of our name, our language, our culture, our God? and our religion. Here in America, all of our religious training has been gotten by the preacher. He has told us of a heaven way up in the sky that we can't enjoy now, but rather after we die. But all of the years that we're living, for us there's nothing but hell, pain, torture, and misgiving. Yet the Bible speaks of a heaven filled with material luxury, which the white man and the preacher 
has right here so we see. So my friend, take it for what it's worth. Your heaven and your hell is right here on this earth. So let's check back into history, which rewards all research and tells us plainly that before the white man gained entry to the east, he was living in the caves of Europe, a ravenous beast, eating juniper roots and eating flesh raw, till God sent Moses to civilize him and teach him the law. Then following Marco Polo, an explorer, he gained entry into Asia and Africa. From China, he took silk and gunpowder. From India, he took jute, manganese, and rubber. He raped Africa of her diamonds and her gold. From the Mideast, he took barrels of oil untold. Raping, robbing, and murdering everything in his path. The whole black world has tasted of the white man's wrath. So, my friend, it's not hard to tell. A white man's heaven is a black man's hell. America, we were living in the east, by the Nile River, we were living in luxury, enjoying freedom, justice, and equality, we were silk and rope, it was the gold, we were the wealthiest and the wisest people, I'm told, now we are the poorest of the poor, nobody wants us at their door. And it's easy to tell White man heaven Black man hell When the white man came To America He told the Indian I am your white brother He said red man I'll treat you the best Yet until he pushed the Indian further west With his white woman and fire water Tricks and lies he stole America The original owner of this nation Is cooped up on a reservation So my friend it's easy to tell White man heaven, black man hell Someone to work the land His back was too weak He needed you black man So he commissioned Sir John Hawkins To commit the worst Most grievous sin To take a man Who's born to be free And bring him down To slavery To sell a man As merchandise On his body put 
a price Oh, my friend, it's easy to tell White man heaven is a black man hell Again was uh, Louis Farrakhan when he was known as Louis X from 1960. A white man's heaven is a black man's hell, and that's a significant 45. If you don't know what a 45 is, look it up. But a 45 that Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and his Cassius Clay would play constantly as he is becoming a member of the Nation of Islam. And so I thought I'd play that for you because you know, as Johnny Smith who wrote the book, co-authored the book of. Blood Brothers, who I just interviewed, he mentioned it, and he mentions it in the book. It's, you know, so I hope you got the essence of what, you know, imagine, you know, 20-year-old Cassius Clay listening to this constantly and what's going on in his head. And that's only part one of it, because it's a part two, the flip side of that 45, but we're not going to play that, because we're going to switch gears now. Because we lost um, last week an important person in the world of music, in, in particular, the world of funk. And I'm talking about the late, great keyboardist, extraordinaire, organist, you just name it, the one and only Bernie Worrell. I mean, he just, he made that funkadelic sound parliament go. And I'm going to play some cuts from, you know, from some of his albums and also some stuff with parliament. Starting off with, uh, I think I'll give you um, Bernie Worrell doing uh you know, some people, you know, there are unfortunately some alcoholics out there, but Bernie, he said he was a funkaholic. So let's play Bernie Well on into song Funkaholics on the Root and Root Show.
I know you got some insurance on all that you you carrying around there. I know you got some body collision, some liability or something. You look like a precious stone, baby. Oh. Better let me tell you some of this here insurance on that funk got there. <laughs> funk it. Call me insurance man for the funk. Oh. And you show me some insurance on all that you got there. Oh, 
And that was our tribute on the Root and Root show to the great Bernie Morrell, who passed last week, if you're listening uh, live. And that was I'll Be With You. Before that, we did Insurance Man for the Funk. I like to be considered that. And before that, we did uh, Bernie Morrell with uh, Parliament and Flashlight. And so many hip-hop artists took that, what Bernie Morrell did in that song in particular. It's just amazing. And before that, we did an instrumental version by Bernie Morrell. It's rarely heard of Flashlight. And then we started to set off with the Bernie Morrell playing Funkaholics. I hope you enjoyed that set on the Root and Root Show. And I'm going to play right now some more funk because I'm going to do uh, Betty Davis, who was married to Miles Davis. If you don't know Betty Davis, I ain't talking about the actress. If you don't know Betty Davis, I've played Betty Davis on my show many times in the past, both on the Root and Root Show and other shows I've done on the air over the years. And this is Betty Davis right now in the song Funk. So let's hear that. She spells it out F-U-N-K. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Thank you. 
bandana full of glittering generality Fighting for freedom and fighting terror But what's reality? Read about the history of the place that we live in And stop letting corporate news tell lies to your children Flow like the blood of Abraham Through the Jews and the Arabs Broken apart like a woman's heart Abused in the marriage The brink of holy war Bottled up like a miscarriage Embedded correspondence Don't tell the source of the tension And they refuse to even mention European intervention or the massacres in Janine, the innocent screams, U.S. manufactured missiles and M16s, weapon contracts and corrupted American dreams, media censorship blocking out the video screens, the continent of oil kingdoms bought for a bargain, democracy is just a word when the people are starving, the average citizen made to be blind to the reason, a desert full of genocide where the bodies are freezing and the world doesn't believe that you're fighting for freedom Fuck the Middle East and gave birth to a demon It's open season with the CIA Fucking my crib, trapped in a ghetto region Like a Palestinian kid Where nobody gives a fuck whether you die or you live I'm trying to give the truth and I know the price is my life But when I'm gone they'll sing a song about immortal technique Who beheaded the president and the princes and sheiks You don't give a fuck about us I can see through your facade Like a fallen angel standing in the presence of God Niggas scared of the truth when it looks at you hard It's like MK Ultra controlling your brain Suggestive thinking causing your perspective to change They want to rearrange the whole point of view in the ghetto The fourth branch of the government want us to settle A bandana full of glittering generality Fighting for freedom and fighting terror But what's reality? Martial law is coming soon to the hood to kill you While you hanging your flag out your project window branch of the government, aka the media, seems to now have a retirement plan for ex-military officials, as if their opinion was at all unbiased. A machine shouldn't speak for men, so shut the fuck up, you mindless drone. And you know it's serious when these same media outfits are spending millions of dollars on a PR campaign to try to convince you they're fair and balanced, when they're some of the most ignorant and racist People giving that type of mentality a safe haven. We act like we share in the spoils of war that they do. We die in wars. We don't get the contracts to make money off them afterwards. We don't get weapons contracts, nigga. We don't get cheap labor for our companies, nigga. We are cheap labor, nigga. Turn off the news and read, nigga. there. I played that a couple of uh, months ago. That was a mortal technique in the fourth branch. And before that we did Betty Davis and F-U-N-K Funk on the Root and Root show. And we're going to get to more music right now. I'm going to play a brand new one. Just got this. This is a Candy Springs. And this is uh, featuring um, Terrence Blanchard on trumpet. And this is Soul Eyes. So let's hear this on the Root and Root show. Mm-hmm. 
watching on a dance floor Maybe at the exit door And maybe we could talk some more
I thought I'd throw in one more um, Bernie Worrell, and that's what sing. Before that, we did uh, Renee Newfall, and that was uh, Watching Me. Before that, we did Tony Red and Underneath My Skin. And we started to set off with Candy Springs, a new one, and Soul Eyes on the Root and Root Show. And I just want to thank everyone who's listening. If you didn't listen in live, and a lot of folks don't listen in live, they listen at their convenience on this station, being blogtalkradio.com, or they go to iTunes or YouTube or KUHS, that's easy for me to say, uh, Denver Radio, or they go to various other sources on social media. But they go and they listen. Even on Twitter, they listen. And if you want to listen to some places and also just get with me as far as uh, suggesting topics for the show, because a lot of the topics, a lot of the music I play are based on based on listeners like yourself who offer suggestions to me. So you can go to, you can go first on to Facebook, look for Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam. Again, that's hashtag Unifix, and airplane flew over, but it's hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam. You can also go to the Hotmail account I have and go to Unifix again, U-N-I-F-I-C-S at Hotmail.com. Also, you can go to the Blog Talk Radio site where we're getting a lot of followers at blogtalkradio.com backslash Root and Root Show. So, again, this is Greg Rashid with the Root and Root Show. If you got suggestions, again, feel free to go to those um, various social media sites and find me and seek me out because I'm always available as far as answering your questions and listening to your suggestions, because I love that. But again, I want to thank Johnny Smith for being on this evening, the co-author of the excellent book on basic books, Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship of Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. I really suggest checking that out. As he was saying, we were saying during the program, the fact is that uh, there's this narrative that's out there as Muhammad Ali being this person who he really wasn't, during the glory years, the peak years of his championship, and also when he was fighting against racism and he was opposed to the Vietnam War, you know, he had a strong sense of black pride. I want you to, you know, like I said earlier, go to, if you don't want to read any books, go to YouTube, go Google his name and look up different, you know, interview stories that he, you know, he was talking about and just really learn about the true Muhammad Ali. And also watch the fights, too, but just learn. And don't let people tell you. Even me, if you question the things I say on this show, just go, go and look, look up something. Learn. The thing is about the society now is you have opportunities to find instant information instantly. Where there was a time where, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, you had to go to the library or you had to get a newspaper. Sometimes it would take a while to get a book that you needed where you can get the information instantly like that. So really take advantage of the medium that you have out there because nothing is promised as far as the free medium, as far as the internet being around. So you never know, you know, it might change in an instant. If anyone had told you 10 years ago that, you know, this is what, you know, everyone would be on the internet. They say, Oh no, what is the internet? What is this? But things are changing so quickly. So this, again, this is Greg Rashid, host of the root and root show. I just want to say, go in love and go in peace, hug someone out there and just, Take care, and we'll see you next time.